Sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Thursday show. Yes, I was actually troubled enough to come into the office today. Because it's 2022, hit that like button to celebrate doing the least. Y'all, first up, another day, another round of, yeah, completely normal American political ads. Democrats like to say that no one needs an AR-15 for self-defense. That no one could possibly need all 30 rounds. But when this rifle is the only thing standing between your family and a dozen angry Democrats in Klan hoods, you just might need that semi-automatic in all 30 rounds. Okay, so that is an actual real campaign ad from former NFL running back Jerome Davison, who's running for Congress in Arizona. And unsurprisingly, that went absolutely viral, getting more than 4 million views as of recording this video and earning a ton of responses. Right, because while we saw plenty of conservatives praising the ad, there was, of course, a ton of backlash. Some just kind of joking that he should check the political affiliation of those white supremacists. Right, because while it's completely true that Democrats were heavily involved in the early days of the Klan, experts have long said that this idea that Democrats are responsible for the KKK and historically the party of white supremacy ignores a ton of history. First and foremost, it just papers over more than half a century of political realignment. Right, well, the names of the parties stayed the same. They switched platforms in the mid 20th century. With that, due in large part to the fact that white Southerners, many of whom were likely supportive of the Klan's ideals, leaving the Democratic Party to become Republicans after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, as well as an increasing number of black individuals realigning themselves with Democrats increasingly through the early part of the 20th century. And beyond that, it's abundantly clear contemporary white supremacist and white nationalist movements are more deeply rooted in right-wing politics, and unfortunately have even increasingly found a home in mainstream Republican in politics, especially after Trump took office. And also with that, you had some accusing Davison of inciting violence. In doing so, in a week of mass shootings, including one in Highland Park where a shooter murdered seven people and injured dozens more, literally using an AR-style weapon. But none of that, of course, seemed to matter to Davison, who appeared to double down in another tweet following the video, writing, I was born in 1970 in Mississippi. When the KKK came to town, I always felt safe because my father had rifles to protect us. The video is a cinematic depiction of a situation I faced growing up. Racist white liberals love to tell me that my lived experience didn't happen. Which, once again, I'm not saying that a black man living through the 70s and 80s in Mississippi did not deal with racism and the Klan. I'm just saying, if you check in on the Klan or Patriot Front or the Proud Boys, you might be shocked who they're voting for. Like, it might just fucking blow your mind, Jerome. And then we gotta talk about this wild story out of Georgia. So yesterday, in an early morning bombing, a famous rural Georgia monument consisting of large granite slabs was heavily damaged. But the Georgia Bureau of Investigation saying the monument called the Georgia Guidestones was destroyed by unknown individuals who detonated an explosive device and the remains were later knocked down for safety reasons. And if you're wondering, well, why the hell would someone want to bomb a bunch of slabs? Well, it turns out this monument has a really interesting and somewhat bizarre history. Right, so the Guidestones, which have been dubbed America's Stone Stonehenge were erected in 1980 in Elberton, a small city over 100 miles outside of Atlanta. But beyond that, not really anything else is known about the monument, like why it was commissioned, what it means, or even the identity of the person who paid for it. But according to the Elberton Granite Association, a man identified only as R.C. Christian commissioned the project for a group of out-of-state Americans who asked to remain anonymous. And as for the people who knew Christian's real identity, they apparently took an oath of secrecy and haven't broken. And as far as the slabs, the Georgia Department of Economic Development describes them as displaying, quote, a 10-part message espousing the conservation of mankind and future generations in 12 languages. And the monument was also an astronomical calendar. Every day at noon, the sun comes through a hole in the structure and it lights up the date. Now, as far as the messages, many of them were kind of, you know, what you'd expect from a slab. Things like urging people to protect nature and care for one another. But uh, there are also a, a few odd ones, including one that called for the global population to be capped at 500 million and another that urged reproduction to improve fitness and diversity. And so with all this secrecy and weirdness, well, the monument, yes, it attracted a lot of travelers. It also attracted a lot of theories, including a range of weird conspiracies 
conspiracy theories. Over the years, we've seen people claiming that the Guidestones are part of some evil global scheme. This including, you guessed it, Alex Jones, who argued in the 2008 documentary that the slabs were evidence of a plot by global elites to enslave the whole world. The site was also the subject of recent attention when Georgia gubernatorial candidate Candace Taylor, who placed a distant third place in the race, pledged to demolish them as part of her campaign. But they're claiming that getting rid of the monument was necessary to fight the Luciferian cabal that she suggested was behind the slabs. And so now that these slabs are gone, possibly because of someone who believed all these conspiracies, experts have said that the bombing shows that these dangerous theories have a real-world impact. Though we've also seen a good chunk of the far right cheering on the explosion and continuing to spread conspiracy theories. This including Taylor, who called the Guidestones satanic and implied that she thought God had struck them down, as well as Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was always happy to jump on any conspiracy, taking a break from spreading lies about mass shootings, being false flags, to do an interview with Alex Jones, where she claimed that the monument presented a future of population control that had been envisioned by the hard left. But ultimately, that is where we are with this insanity right now, and we're gonna have to wait to see if any other information comes out about this bombing. Then, we've got a new controversy in Hollywood, and it involves, like, every actor you maybe know. And all this seeming to stem from the latest movie from director David O. Russell, it's called Amsterdam. The trailer was released yesterday and has the likes of Margot Robbie, Robert De Niro, Chris Rock, Christian Bale, every actor ever. And even Taylor Swift, right? A super star-studded cast. But now, with this trailer coming out, you have a ton of people wondering, why are all these big names working with Russell? And it's because reportedly there have long been a slew of allegations against him on multiple levels. Right? With people pointing to things like he was verbally abusive on set, including cursing out Lily Tomlin while throwing things. Get fucking Hey, bitch, I'm not here to be fucking yelled at. I worked on this fucking thing for three fucking years not to have some fucking cunt yell at me. Then he was apparently so cruel to Amy Adams that co-stars had to intervene. There's also that he's been accused of sexual abuse with his transgender niece filing a complaint around a decade ago saying that he went up to her at a gym and squeezed her breasts while asking her about the transitioning process. And Russell actually confirmed that the incident happened but said that his niece was acting very provocative towards him and invited it to happen. Which is why you had people online saying things like, that David O. Russell has been allowed to set foot on a film set so many times in the last 10 years is one of the most significant abdications of societal duty in history. And people really are just going to promote and celebrate a David O. Russell film like nothing happened happened, aren't they? How disappointing considering so many want to claim they promote and defend victims and reject terrible people. And so with that, some calling out the actors themselves for being in this movie, saying that every interviewer should be asking the cast why they decided to work with David O. Russell after he admitted to sexually assaulting his niece. With a lot of people seeming to specifically express their frustrations with Margot Robbie and also Taylor Swift, and pointing to the fact that she has spoken out against abuse that she has faced herself in the past. With people saying this is her disregarding victims and working with an abuser just so she can try and attain accolades. And more and more people arguing that really there, there's no excuse. Noting that recently there have been things like Beyonce running Me Too checks on potential collaborators for her upcoming album just so she doesn't accidentally platform an abuser. But at the same time, there are some David O. Russell defenders out there. As I'm saying, regarding verbal abuse, you know, sometimes that's just the way that it is on a set. And regarding what happened with his 19-year-old niece, you had people saying, you know, it's a he said, she said, but also 19-year-old niece? Like, am I reading this situation wrong that at the very least, David O. Russell is kind of intrigued by incest? But ultimately, that is where we are with this story. And of course, I want to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? Whether you're in the camp of people disgusted that David O. Russell's getting movies, and big actors are working with him, or if you're on the side where you're defending him. What are you thinking and why? Let me know. But from that, I want to take a second to thank the fantastic sponsor of today's show, Public.com. Public is an investing platform that helps people be better investors in the public markets. And as some of you already know, I personally switched over to Public after I was, uh, let's say, not happy with one of their competitors. And I was definitely not alone in that. And with Public, stock ownership unlocks content and education that's relevant to your portfolio, created by a 3 million plus strong community of investors, creators, and analysts. And one of my favorite things about Public is that they put investors first and they don't sell trades 
to market makers and take money from payment for order flow. They also offer 30 crypto offerings alongside thousands of stocks, ETFs, art, and collectibles. And for those of you crypto curious members new to the space, public added features like educational slideshows and volatility reminders to help educate you along your journey. And amazingly, when you go to public.com slash DeFranco, you'll receive a slice of stock valued up to $1,000 when you sign up. That's public.com slash DeFranco because you should definitely start investing in your future today. And then let's talk about online bullying. Don't do it. But actually, starting today, Japanese online users need to be careful because a law meant to tackle cyberbullying that was passed last month has officially gone into effect. With supporters of the law pushing forward after the 2020 suicide of professional wrestler and reality TV star Hana Kimura, Richie had been on the receiving end of extreme online abuse. And so now people who are found guilty of breaking this law, yes, they can be fined for $2,200, but also they can face up to a year in prison with the law having been prior to this just a $75 and up to 30 days in jail. However, there have been concerns about this law. Firstly, there aren't exact definitions as for what counts as an insult, with it only saying that it's something that's meant to demean someone without a specific fact about them. Otherwise, that would be defamation. And of course, this has prompted fears about free speech. With at least one Japanese criminal lawyer saying, there needs to be a guideline that makes a distinction on what qualifies as an insult. At the moment, even if someone calls the leader of Japan an idiot, then maybe under the revised law, that could be classed as an insult. And if you can't even call Prime Minister Fumio Kishida an idiot, then why even go online in the first place? Bill said without knowing anything about Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. But in fact, concerns about how much this could stifle free speech were so big that they actually agreed to include a provision that would have the law re-examined after three years to make sure it's being used to target cyberbullying while also giving room for other forms of free speech. Though, I do want to note that Japan is not the only G7 country with such a law. The UK, of course, infamously has one that criminalizes, quote, grossly offensive public messages. And just like in Japan, the definition is nebulous. And so that's why with this story, I do want to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? Or like in the United States, yes, we say free speech, but we also know there are lines, right? Incitement to violence, that's not really covered. So I guess the question is, where do you think that the line should be? Do you think that it should be a free for all even with incitement? to violence? Or do you think the line should be moved towards bullying? If so, what kind of bullying? Because I don't know if you've ever been on the internet, what you sometimes mean and how people perceive it, not the same thing. And for me personally, you know, I looked at stories in the past where you had that, that one girl that drove that guy to suicide and I'm like, yeah, fuck her. Do what you can with the law to punish her. But also that's an extreme situation. And for the, the large majority of things, there's a big question mark when you're saying like, yeah, it's bullying and we're not gonna get into specifics. But something that broad, I don't, I don't see how that doesn't get abused by someone eventually. And then we gotta talk about Bojo having a no good, very bad day after a very bad week, after very bad months. But first I do wanna make a small correction regarding regarding yesterday's show. Yesterday I said that the clips that we played of Boris Johnson were from the liaison committee hearing with lawmakers, when in fact it was from a PM's question session the same day, which was also with lawmakers. It doesn't really change the story, but I always like to try to be 100% accurate. But the committee hearing came later in the day and oh my God, did shit somehow get even crazier for you Brits in the last 24 hours? And like, you knew it was gonna get good when lawmaker Bob Neal started off with this question. How important is the truth to you, Prime Minister? A very important. He then peppered Johnson with questions and quotes about his knowledge of MP Chris Pincher's sexual misconduct allegations, with Johnson repeating what he's already said, that the initial statements from his office, that he was never aware of the claims, were false, that he was briefed on them in 2019, and that one was upheld, but didn't rise to the level of criminality. He then had MP Chris Bryant hitting him with this question about the allegation being upheld. I'm asking, have you been told about any other such um, events relating to any other government minister? Formally. Um, um, look, I'd have to get back to you. I mean, I, I, uh, I would not want to... Um, it seems extraordinary that you wouldn't us. know whether there are allegations outstanding against I mean, uh, government, uh, uh, your government ministers of sexual impropriety such that they, they, they might um, constitute um, potentially criminal offences apart from anything else. Look, I, I, th- th- nothing that springs to mind. 
Kate. He also asked Johnson whether he had said that Pincher was a bit handsy, and Johnson replied that handsy isn't a word that he'd use, but refused to give a definitive no. He's then asked whether he made the comment Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, with Johnson replying that he won't get into a trivializing discussion of what he may or may not have said. With Johnson also going on to refuse to say whether Pincher should resign for Parliament, only saying that's a matter for him. And finally, we saw this. Now, how much consideration are you giving to the prospect of your resignation? Uh, I'm happy to tell you that I'm getting on with the job that I was elected to do, and that is what I'm going to do. So, but as we now know today, Johnson is eating those words. Right? Because apparently a ton of his conservative allies disagree. Right? Understand, when the hearing started, 28 government ministers had resigned. By the time that it ended, and literally the number was being updated live on TV while Johnson was talking, 32 had resigned with many more to follow. And understand that 32 number is a very special number because back when he survived a no confidence vote last month, more than 40% of his party voted against him, meaning that only 32 more of his supporters would need to change sides to defeat him. And so that meant by the end of yesterday, it looked like the majority of conservatives may no longer back Johnson, leading many to fear that he might dissolve parliament and call a snap election to avoid being ousted from power, especially because during the hearing lawmakers pressed him on whether he might try to do that and he repeatedly danced around the question. But this morning, Johnson made his decision and drum roll, please. It is clearly not the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And during his goodbye speech in front of his office on Downing Street, he thanks people who voted for him, celebrating his policies on Brexit, the pandemic, and Ukraine. Also going on to blame the herd instinct at Westminster, saying when the herd moves, it moves. And adding the quote, our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader whom he says that he'll support. With Johnson then closing while people were booing and shouting in the background. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. But here's the thing, Johnson resigned, but also not really. Johnson isn't updating his LinkedIn yet. Right now, he is still prime minister. There's no caretaker PM. Johnson is remaining in office until a new leader is chosen. And he said that the timetable for that contest will be announced next week. So what we may have actually seen was Johnson putting in his two week, maybe three month notice. So that's why you have many not satisfied with what we just saw. Like most prominently, former conservative prime minister, Sir John Major, who said that either the timetable should be sped up or deputy prime minister, Dominic Robb should take over as caretaker PM immediately. But let's say the process continues uninterrupted as expected. As far as who the next leader might be, Rob is ruled out running. But you have Attorney General Swella Braverman declaring that she'll run for the post as well as MP Steve Baker saying he's seriously considering it. Though, understand this is still a developing situation. More names are sure to emerge over the next several days. And then on the other side, you have Labor leader Sir Keir Starmer threatening to hold a vote of no confidence if Johnson does not step down immediately. Which would also trigger a general election, but he'd also need a large number of conservatives to join him on that. But I mean, whatever happens now, conservative lawmakers will eventually vote on candidates for the party leadership until only two remain, at which point party members across the country will decide the winner. And also now you have many people wondering whether the conservatives electoral coalition forged under Johnson will even be able to hold after his personality is gone. Also with the way Boris said some of the things, I wonder if he's just gonna start his own party, the uh, the party pincher party. But as we wait to see what the fuck is actually gonna happen there, I wanna pass the question off to you. Once again, it's for everyone, but especially for the Brits out there watching, what are your thoughts here? But ultimately that is where that story and today's show ends. As always with these daily dives into the news, yes, thanks for watching, but but also thanks for being a part of that conversation down below. If you're looking for more news, I got you covered right here. My name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you next time.